that we are very, very blessed. Uh, God has, has blessed us in many ways, but he has blessed us in a big way in having Vance Eastridge as our teacher. And uh, this has been a, we're all better people for having Vance as, as our teacher and just as a friend and, and a part of it. So, uh, Vance, I want you to know that we, we appreciate you and love you and uh, I'm glad you're part of us. Thank you. As you know, I tape all of these lessons for Carlene. I'm just grateful that I turned on the recorder before I stood up. <laughs> I can listen to it over and over again. Today is the Sunday nearest Christmas. And appropriately, it is telling the story of the birth of Jesus, which is what Christmas is all about. I started preparation for the lesson in the sense in which the lesson writer was taking us in our thoughts. And then I opened the leader's guide and began to read suggestions that he had as to ways in which the material can be presented. And in the very first paragraph, I got diverted from the direction in which the lesson writer was going, sent me off on a tangent in an entirely new direction if you, got, if you read your Sunday school lesson, good, you're getting two different presentations. It came from the statement made by the writer of the Leader's Guide that in one of the Mitford books, and most of you are familiar with them, they are written about the people in the village of nearby Blowing Rock. Father Tim and a little girl named Jessie were out in front of St. Timothy's looking at a full-size crash that had been put on the lawn for Christmas. And as they stood looking at it, little Jesse, who knew nothing of the Christmas story, stood up on tiptoes and looked and said, there's a baby in that box. Father Tim's reaction was, to many children, the baby never gets out of the box. And my thought registered for many adults the baby never gets out of the box. Now through the season of Advent, we look at all of the prophecies and the promises that are related to the coming of the Messiah. We celebrate them, we enumerate them, and then we come to Christmas Day and we let the baby be born. Then we drop the whole thing. Christmas is over and we go on to something else. And oftentimes, in fact, as well as in, the in theory, we leave the baby in the box. And I wanted to take the baby out. I thought, why are we talking so much about the prophecies and the promises? We're 20 centuries away from the event. Let's talk about the fulfillment of those promises. Did he provide what was promised? Did he fulfill the prophecies that were made? If so, then let's celebrate that. And in that sense, I wanted us to think this morning, looking back over 20 centuries, 
in the words of the emissary from John the Baptist, is he the one that we expected or should we wait for another? It depends on what happened when we took him out of the box. I want to begin with a story. It was written by Bret Hart. Bret Hart wrote about the Old West and the mining camps of the Old West. And he wrote about Roaring Camp. Roaring Camp, in his words, was the vilest, the rudest, the most miserable of all the mining camps. It was said by him that if one died a natural death, usually it meant that a pistol had been pointed in his direction. And that when they were gambling in the saloon, that if someone were caught cheating and was shot, that the other gamblers looked for just a moment and then went back to their gambling. It was that kind of place, Rory Camp. On the very first page, he introduces Cherokee Sal. Cherokee Sal was carrying a baby and complications arose when the baby was born. Stumpy, one of the members of the community who had spent some time in medical school and knew a little bit about medicine, took over when the delivery of the baby became a problem. He didn't have the skills to save the life of the mother, but he was able to save the life of the little baby. She died, the baby lived. The miners suddenly found on their hands a little newborn baby. There wasn't anyone who could take over the role of mother, and so they had to do it themselves. They took the little baby and put it in a box that had been stuffed with rags. And then after a while, they began to realize that that beautiful, smooth, pink face just didn't go with that box. So they took up a collection and they sent one of their number 80 miles away to get a rosewood cradle and they brought it back and they threw away the box and they placed the baby in the rags in the rosewood cradle and they stood back and thought how appropriate until they realized the rags didn't belong in a rosewood cradle. So they sent another of their number to Sacramento with the instructions that he was to bring back the most beautiful lace and the softest linens that they could find to put in the rosewood cradle. They brought it back and there was the baby in the beautiful rosewood cradle with pure white soft linens about. But the floor on which the cradle sat now looked even grimier than it did before. So they got down on their hands and knees and with brushes they scoured the floor until it was as clean as it was the day that it had been laid. <clears throat> and then they realized that the walls in comparison with the floor were dirty and grimy and they washed down the walls. Then the windows were hardly open enough to see through because of the grime, the accumulated grime. And so they scoured them down and hung draperies on the window. Now the room was worthy of a little baby so beautiful as that one. <coughs> when the weather was pretty, they took the little baby out to the mine where they mined to take care of it there. And there they realized that the baby looked upon the grime of the mines and so they began to plant flowers. They made it beautiful. And as they mined, they would come upon beautiful pebbles and they would set them apart and bring them to the little baby. <coughs> the owner of Tuttle's store realized a good thing when he saw it and he put up mirrors in the store and the miners began to see how dirty and unkempt they were. And so he began to sell razors and soap and clothes. And after a while, the entire community was transformed. It was no longer the roaring gap 
that it was in the beginning. And now it was a quiet, subtle place filled with people who took pride in who they were and the things about them. The writer says that Christmas came to Roaring Gap. That's what happened. When Jesus came into the world, he came into a Roaring Gap, a world that was so primitive in what it was in terms of what it could be, that it was ready for someone to, by contrast, clean up everything. Women had no worth the day that Jesus was born. They were practically owned and they did the bidding of those who had authority over them. Children weren't loved by the Roman and Greek standards. If a child were born and it were malformed in any way, it was justifiable to take the life of that baby and not let it grow, grow up. And if it was a girl and you didn't want a girl, then the best thing to do would be to drown it. This was acceptable in the roaring gap in which Jesus was born. Someone said, everyone was either a slave or a slaveholder. It was that kind of world. And he came with all of the promises and the prophecies of those who awaited his coming. Now, let's look back over these 20 centuries and answer, did he fulfill the promise? Did he clean up roaring camp? Or is the world pretty much the same? The purpose for God bringing Jesus into the world was to reconcile the world to himself. This was the first order of business. The Messiah was to open the souls of the people and through grace brought by his life, death and resurrection, we were to be reconciled to God. Civilization since the time of Jesus has revealed that, yes, he opened our souls to a better life. Most of the teaching of Jesus did not have to do with changing the world about us. It was to alert us to the kingdom of heaven and the promises of the kingdom of heaven. But by the very nature of his life and the priorities of life, he changed the world wherever he went, though he did not head movements to bring about change. He fulfilled the first priority. He opened the souls of humanity to grace and reconciliation. But the ancillary result of Jesus coming into the world is equally dramatic because with the change in the souls of people came the changes to the world in which they lived. He opened the minds of people. The greatest gift that God has given to any one of us is our mind, the ability to reason, the ability to understand, the ability to change things by the way in which we see them. Prior to the coming of Jesus into the world, it was a world of prejudices, of isolationism, it was a world that knew very little about the realities of God and his desires for us. Based primarily upon the Ten Commandments, all of which were negative instructions, having little to do with the positive nature of who we ought to be. And Jesus opened the minds of the people to the positive nature of our relationship with God. 
Nothing surmounts the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in telling us who we are, who we can become, and the responsibilities that we have in the living out of our lives. In the teachings of Christ, he taught us about God, he taught us about ourselves, and he taught us about others in ways that we had never known before. And we have kept it alive. We almost lost all knowledge when the Roman Empire fell and the Dark Ages came upon the world, but it was those monks in those dark rooms leaning over tables with a quill in their hand recording and preserving the truths when outside of those monasteries truth was dying in decay but they kept it alive and then sensing the need to spread the teachings of Christ and bring it alive to the world universities came into being the universities were born in the dark ages for the primary purpose of keeping alive the teachings of Jesus Christ and down through the centuries from them, the universities have been primarily those places where intellect is joined with faith and brought into action in the world. Oxford University, where John Wesley stepped out of the corridors of Oxford and the great evangelical revival of England took place. The University of Wittenberg, where Martin Luther, poring over scripture in the library, shouted, that's it! The just shall live by faith, and the great reformation blossomed in all the world. Out of the universities, the using of the mind, the pitting of the mind with faith to reality, the world has been changed. When we became an infant nation here, the church established Harvard University to propagate the faith, Yale University to propagate the faith, Princeton University by the Presbyterians to propagate the faith, William and Mary by the Anglicans to propagate the faith, Duke University and Vanderbilt University by the Methodists to propagate the faith. Learning had its roots in the teachings of Christ and the desire to perpetuate the teachings of Christ to the world. He opened our minds to the realities that before had been overshadowed and lost. And with the opening of our minds, he opened our eyes. To know and do nothing about it is a sin against God. But there are those throughout all of history who dramatically, with the opening of their minds, begin to see things as they were and want to do something about it to make them the way that Jesus would do if he were there. And so one by one, the giants of history set forth on a pilgrimage to right the wrongs of the world. William Booth was a Methodist lay preacher appointed to one of the respectable churches in London. But he had been in East London. He saw the people living in the gutters, dying of starvation, children without clothing, the poor, forgotten people of the city. And he asked that he could go there and establish a church. And the answer was no. And so he gave up his credentials as a Methodist lay speaker. Methodist lay preacher and he went into East London and there he organized his own group and there he told them of Jesus love but he fed them and he put clothes on them as well and that little movement there in East London grew into the Salvation Army 
No more respected group in all of the world in meeting the needs in the name of Christ than the Salvation Army. And we have walked by their kittles these days, bell ringing above, asking for donations of love in the spirit of William Booth to go out and to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked, to do those things that Jesus set in our hearts to do. There was that little lady kneeling at the communion rail in her brother's church, Harriet Beecher Stowe. And while taking communion, suddenly there flashed before her the dread image of slavery in America. And a light flashed in her mind as to what she could do about it. And she went home and she wrote a book, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And the reading of that book captured the imagination and struck at the conscience of the people of America. And the freedom that came to the slaves has a great part due to the writing of Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin. The story is that Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe on one occasion, and he greeted her with the words, so you're the little lady that started the war. <laughs> Thoughts translated into action. There are missionaries who have gone out to every quarter of the world, sacrificially living in order to bring into reality the promises and the teachings of Christ. When our minds are enlightened, we see things as we haven't seen them before. And when the spirit of love captures our lives, we do something about it. And so over these 20 centuries, as we look back to the little baby that was born in Bethlehem, we see the establishment of great universities. We see hospitals where the sick are cared for. We see orphanages where the little children are taken out of the streets and given a proper upbringing. Over the centuries, we have grown higher and higher in our sensitivity to what it was that Jesus came into the world to do. And we have done it well. We have much more to do because it has not yet all been done. We tend to be negative about the world the world is today spiritually. And there are many who want to override the strong spiritual force that is in the world. But it cannot be quelled because the power of the baby in the cradle is far greater than the power of those who would divert our attention from it. And though we are aware, conscious of many things going in the world today that are obstacles to the growth of Christianity, there has been no time in history in which we have done more for the betterment of humanity. Never have we been more sensitive to the needs that prior to now have not been met. And the rights of women and the rights of minorities strengthen every day. The freedoms that we experience here in America, we no longer take for granted because we have been threatened by the loss of them, and so they become even more dear to us. It's a great time in the world today, and the future can be even greater when the spirit of the little baby in manger is taken out of the box and put into the lives of people. 
Jesus opened our souls to reconciliation, our minds to the realities of his teaching, our eyes to the needs of the world that his message could fulfill. But most importantly of all, he opened our hearts to love. There's more power in love than in any other force in the world. We talk about the power of hatred, but it's nothing compared with the power of love. The whole story of Jesus is a story of love. And when we let the little child of Bethlehem into our lives, suddenly we love the way he loved. There's a true story that came out of World War II. It was Christmas Eve, and it was the Battle of the Bulge. And the American soldiers were weary from fighting, but even in their weariness, they became aware of the fact that this is Christmas Eve, and so they were sitting around in whatever sense they could, recapturing the memories of their childhood and Christmas and the meaning of that particular season of the year, even though they were fighting one of the harshest battles in the history of the war. Three of the men wandered away from the rest, wandered out into the snow, meditating, looking up into the sky at the stars. After a while, they realized that they were lost and didn't know how to get back to their group. And so they wandered for a long time, and then suddenly they realized that in their wanderings, they had gotten back of the enemy and were on the other side, and no way to get back to their group without passing through the forces that were there to take their lives. They stealthily tried to find their way back, but were discovered, and shots began to ring out. One of them was struck with a bullet. They hid themselves in the snow until finally their adversaries were gone but they were still lost and one of them was bleeding. So they wandered trying to find a place of refuge and they came upon a little cottage there in the forest. And they rapped upon the door and a woman came to the door. She and her little daughter lived in the cottage, German of course, because they were back of the lines. She spoke some English enough that they could communicate and the soldiers told them that one of their number was wounded and could she let them come in out of the cold? She was the enemy. They didn't know what kind of reception they would receive, but they were desperate. And she saw the young soldier bleeding and the fear on his face. And she brought them in. She gave them a place to lie down. And she began to prepare a warm meal for them. They were incredulous that an enemy could treat them so warmly and friendly. And while they were awaiting the dinner, a knock came up on the door, and here were three German soldiers. They were on their way to join their troops and saw the cottage and decided if they could find refuge there, they would spend the night and then go on their way. And fear crossed the face of the woman when she realized that she had three American soldiers inside and three German soldiers on the outside. What would happen when they came together? And so she frankly said to them, I have three American soldiers in my house and one of them is wounded. If you will lay down your arms, you're welcome to come inside. But this is Christmas Eve and there must be no shooting this night. And they agreed and they came in. They eyed one another warily in the early hours of the evening, not knowing what to expect of the other. And finally she called them to the table and they sat down and ate together. 
And she called upon the little girl, and the little girl offered thanks for the food. And she thanked them for their guests, and she asked for peace and love. And the soldiers began to melt under the sincere words of the little girl, and they ate. And after the meal was over, then the mother began to sing, Silent Night, Holy Night, in German, Stillig Night, Heiligen Night, and the German soldiers joined in. But the tune immediately captured the memory of the American soldiers, and they joined in in their English. And there they sang together, Silent Night, Holy Night, in German and in English, and it bonded together. It wove itself into something that when it was over, they began to look at each other differently. The soldier who was wounded was lying on his cot and now he was beginning to groan in pain. And one of the German soldiers said, I spent some time in medical school. I'm not a doctor, but would you let me look at the young man? And his companions agreed that he could. And he said, the bullet is lodged in a place that if it isn't removed, he's going to bleed to death. I'm willing to give it a try if you would let me. And they looked at one another and they saw that they had not much choice but to let him do it. And they said, what if we don't remove the bullet? And he said, he'll bleed to death. And so he performed the surgery there, removed the bullet. And he said, I think he'll live. The pain subsided, the night grew long. The next morning they were all ready to leave. The American soldier said to the German shoulder who spoke English, we're lost. Do you have any idea as to how we might get back to the troops that we left? And he said, yes, I'll draw a map for you. And he drew a map showing them how to get back to the troops on the other side and how to escape the troops that had been waiting for them. And then they left and the soldiers left behind them. Not a shot was fired. That night, love overcame a war, overcame enemies, bond them together in a way that nothing else could. And that's what Christmas does when you take the baby out of the box. And now, this. Every time a new disciple is one for Jesus Christ, the Christ child is born all over again because in that person all of the powers and the realities and the promises of the Messiah are fulfilled and are carried out into the world. He was born 20 centuries ago, but he's reborn every time there is a new birth of the Spirit in the acceptance of his being our Messiah. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, and God bless us, everyone. <laughs>